Hello, and welcome back to Moral of Story podcast. Um, in the last episode, I apologize for the narrative. It was a little shaky with the recording. I was getting kind of sick, like I had a cold in the summer. Uh, it was kind of hard for me to speak, and so a lot of the words got really slurred, or they kind of sounded like other words while I was doing the editing, and I was trying to fix it, but I would have had to re-record it, and I thought it was more important to get the episode out so that people can listen and experience it rather than having it perfect. And so I didn't end up re-recording, but hopefully the narrative in this episode goes a little better. Um, We will be talking about counseling in this episode, and not just counseling, but like medication and other treatments or things that you can do on your own time that can help you progress in your mental health and your mental illnesses and how you can kind of combat those during like difficult times. And so without further ado, I will try to get into it. This narrative will be a little bit of a reflection and kind of discuss a little bit of what was talked about in previous episodes. My first experience with counseling occurred at the age of eight. I was regressing into a depressive state and expressing myself in journals rather than playing an indoor recess. And my teacher had noticed that I was behaving differently and my grades were dropping. After reading my notebook I had stashed in my desk, she requested that I go to counseling and I was pulled out of class later that week. As a small eight-year-old child, I was embarrassed for being pulled out of class because I was afraid of what my classmates would think or that they might assume that I was in trouble and being sent to the principals. And when I saw the counselor pull out the copies of what I had written, I felt violated because I didn't give the writings to the teacher. And so I refused to open up as the counselor went through the lines about how I hated my life and wanted it all to end. And she started asking questions about my thoughts about death, which truthfully came from the recent death of my aunt. I had suffered from feeling out of place or that I was the problem for several years already although I was just a small kid. What had happened though, that had set me off the edge, was a new heavier blame that I felt that I could not share with anyone. My aunt had lived one state over and I had rarely seen her throughout my life because of the travel distance. However, since she and my uncle were originally from our area, she had come to stay at my grandma's house to say goodbye to family as she lived out her final days with terminal cancer. For Christmas that year, because I enjoyed scrapbooking and art, I had received a card making kit and I had made her a homemade get well soon card and had asked to visit her to hand her the card in person. Too young to realize that get well soon was not plausible. I recall my mom objecting to the request because everyone in our household other than me was sick with the flu and she was afraid that my aunt would get even sicker. My dad's response was I really don't think that's going to matter because he knew she was living on borrowed time the way it was. However, I further recall my cousin who was in nursing school explaining to us one day that a person is most contagious three days before ever showing any symptoms. My dad had brought me over to give her the card and in the early hours of the morning, I awoke puking and was informed later when everyone woke up that my aunt had passed. After doing the math, I immediately realized that I had given her a card three days earlier and had made the assumption that by giving her the flu, I had caused her passing. I was afraid of what my family would think if they ever found out that I was the cause of her death, which of course I wasn't, but in my eight-year-old mind, I was, and I thought they would hate me forever. I could no longer be around my family without crying, because I felt that I had the secret and that I didn't belong in the family. So of course, the death of my aunt, who I had only seen a handful of times in my life, took an immense toll on my mental health, and I began crying regularly. The journals were the only way I could express myself without letting the secret out. The discovery of the copies of the journal ruined my trust as I feared that the secret would come out, but I was still careful in the writings never to confess it directly. Rather, I spoke mostly about how I hated myself and the thoughts pertaining to death. I told my mom about the experience of them taking my writings out of my desk in the counseling session and she told the school about my recent discussions about wanting to be homeschooled. I was struggling with relating with my peers after experiencing hints of social anxiety, 
and hated doing schoolwork because it was difficult for me to remember that I had homework. My focus was short-lived. Furthermore, I struggled with following along with directions for several years now, which got me into trouble more than most kids and made homework all the more difficult. I refused to go back to counseling because I was scared and taught myself not to talk about it. And it felt like I was in trouble. And for years, knowing the way my mom reacted to the news at home, defensive and almost hurt, I was afraid to ever go back if I had to consult, consult my mom about the appointment. By refusing to confront childish and irrational guilt, I let fester into creating a mindset that I was unwanted and if people knew me, they would dislike me. And I cried frequently for years, even as the memory of the guilt went on the back burner in my mind. I had stopped writing momentarily because I no longer trusted the outlet, but would still turn to it when the depression and anxiety got extremely difficult. When years later, I would return to the school counselor the day that I had the disagreement with my English teacher, I was once again having thoughts of death or wanting to escape, but refused to say it out loud to the counselor much like I did as a child, because I could not trust and was afraid of what would happen if the word got out. So the session was interpreted as a minor run-in with my grades and missed the larger point once more. Even to this day, I struggle to express fully what I am going through. Majority of the time, no matter how open I am, I keep a few secrets of my condition to myself because I am too afraid to share or be exposed to the judgment of others. Even in writing this podcast, although I have shared so much, I keep my secrets that I find impossible to discuss or confront. And after nearly taking my life, I began to meditate in the form of prayer since I felt that counseling was not an option. I would sort through my options and take a pause from my life as I knew it to reflect and take a step back. Nightly prayers taught me to acknowledge my mistakes and analyze how I could prevent it from happening again. But I would often drift off in thought when I was alone at night and go down a rabbit hole of thinking of my shortcomings and failures, which did not happen near as much when I began to attend Eucharistic adorations. However, I did not know the existence of Eucharistic adoration until years later. Therefore, another method of coping with suicidal thoughts during my sophomore year had returned back to journaling and listening to music that felt relatable. Even listening to sad songs that felt like they spoke about the hurt I was experiencing felt therapeutic. When trying to get over Seth, I had listened to Don't Think I Don't Think About It, and the one song that had always made me cry was Some People Do. I would listen to the playlist of songs that made me think about the events that hurt me, alone in my room, and although they made me sad in the moment, it became easier to process what I was feeling and going through. I began FaceTiming and calling friends when I felt alone, and even if I didn't discuss the hurt I was going through, especially with the adjustment of moving to college, the company of calling a friend helped me feel more at ease. But talking to friends about the issues I was having when I would talk to them was difficult, not because I didn't have their support, because I felt that they couldn't understand because I was having so much difficulty expressing what I was feeling. Because for years I suppressed my emotions until they came out in bursts of anger or irritability. And learning how to talk about hardship is a learning curve no one ever talks about. I felt and still do at time that there is no way they could possibly understand because my explanations were never quite right. I found that poetry eased some of the struggle to express myself because the feelings were abstract and were best expressed in abstract ways. I would write letters to myself or create prayer journals to sort through my thoughts. These thoughts were often never expressed out loud because of my struggle with miscommunication that caused me to repeat myself constantly. And I was becoming more annoyed with my own conversations and frustrated. It was not until the fall of my freshman year that I finally returned to counseling because I had realized I had several unresolved issues and began to discover what I didn't repair from my past I was beginning to repeat. And I refused to go back down that road. However, the counseling center was full during my first attempt to go, so they taught me about mind traps, and I began to discover on my own self-exploration the flaws of my mindset and the intrusive thoughts in the rabbit hole of negative thought processes I allowed myself to tumble into regularly. By recognizing these thoughts I beca that became the norm for me, I was beginning to confront them. As mentioned before, my first experience with a counselor left a sour taste in my mouth because I was scared. I had my own preconceived notions of how it would go and still and was still defensive, especially as the subject of the summer after my junior year was being discussed. 
and the suggestion of Catholic guilt shut me down because the fear of being misunderstood was impossible to ignore. However, my next counselor asked questions that helped me process what I was feeling. And at the mention of my social anxiety, she helped me recognize why I felt excluded and unwanted and whether I really had any proof or if it was all in my head and helped me guide and helped guide me through what I could say that was respectful to both parties in the conversation to express things that were upsetting me and decipher which people were worth keeping in my life and which ones were disrespectful towards me with no intention of changing. We even looked into where the social anxiety started, but unfortunately we did not get a chance to dive deep into the issues I was having within just one single session and the COVID-19 pandemic emerged and left me unable to seek further counseling. Therefore, I did my own research on mental health and what it was like to have panic attacks, anxiety attacks, and what it looked like to have anxiety and depression in relationships, and figured out on my own how to recognize and combat the symptoms through my own research and self-exploration. This research was perhaps the most helpful tool against the symptoms of mental illness, and I found that the solitude of quarantine was actually beneficial in me taking my time and working on myself while I was away from the rest of the world, and my mental state was actually thriving during the pandemic. However, the stress of going back to school in a pandemic when I was no longer in isolation proved to be a heavier burden than I anticipated. Although I did feel better equipped to face the difficulties after taking the past few months to learn more about my condition, it was still difficult and I still needed external help and I reached back out for the counseling center to discuss the school stresses and other hardships in my life and how to handle them. I was redirected to a second counselor, which was a grad student that was being studied and critiqued on how she worked with me. And after my first, uh, my first session, I became weary that perhaps she wasn't a great fit for me because it felt like talking to a friend that was trying too hard to relate and be supportive, but not taking the time to truly hear me out. But I gave her another chance and found that she had grown and improved her ability to communicate with me as she understood my situation more and more with each session. She had suggested practice conversations with people who were gaslighting me or blowing me off and would give me small tasks to work on between the bi-weekly sessions, such as mindfulness, the practice of focusing primarily on the task you are doing at hand and distancing yourself from other thoughts that overrun your mind. For example, if you eat, you think and focus only on eating or brushing your teeth or cleaning and try to avoid intrusive thoughts or any thought about anything else. This practice felt uncomfortable to me, and I found that going to adoration and praying the rosary was more beneficial to me, although I did occasionally attempt practicing mindfulness from time to time. I had even created an emergency plan with the counselor if I ever became suicidal or needed help in a particularly difficult moment. After several weeks, with the school only becoming more intense, it was clear that the counseling and assignments alone were not enough, so I was referred to a psychiatrist to get medication for anxiety. At the psychiatrist, I was asked to fill out the same questionnaire about my current mental health state, much like I would before each counseling session. Then I was prescribed my first medication. I was warned of all the side effects and was told to watch for behavioral changes after taking the medication. And I was recommended to let someone know that I had started the meds so that they could monitor how I was reacting to it. But because of the pandemic and never being around many people for long periods of time, I found it unlikely that someone would be around me long enough to notice any negative changes. I was also told it would take three to four weeks before noticing any differences and that the differences would be subtle. However, within the first four days of starting the medication, I was fidgety, unable to focus, feeling loopy, and unable to care enough about the task or assignment enough to really complete it. But I did feel much happier and after the first week, it subsided to a normal, healthy level of stress and care. Nearly a month into the medication, I was ending my counseling sessions and moving into an as-needed basis rather than a regular bi-weekly schedule, and never returned my last session I had asked about emotional support animals, and the counseling office informed me that they cannot approve animals and requested that I try the psychiatrist to which the psychiatrist admitted during my monthly checkup that it must be done by a family doctor. I was afraid to ask the family doctor, so I booked an appointment under the reason of anxiety treatment, which he took as a change in the medication, so I switched to a different pill, and he did, in, in the end, write me a note for my dog to stay with me at college because the support of, 
an animal for company in the sensory therapy is extremely effective for those suffering from mental illness. For the first few days after switching medication, I felt loopy and out of it, much like the first week I had took the first medication. And then it subsided, but I was still feeling extremely drowsy. My anxiety significantly decreased, but I was sleeping up to 16 hours a day and found it difficult to focus on school while I was awake because I was still powering through fatigue. The symptom of the medication often only lasts for the first few weeks for most people, but it carried through to the three or four month duration I was on the medication. Finally, I requested a change in my medication and which was complemented by a supplement to treat adrenal fatigue, which is a temporary condition that results from when your anxiety uses up so much adrenaline during the fight or flight, resu- the fight or flight response to stress and anxiety that the body cannot keep up with the creation of the chem- chemical and can leave you fatigued and-, and exhausted at nearly all times. At this point in time, I currently plan on returning to the counseling as soon as I can, as I have been struggling with several issues over the summer far more than usual. And the summer is typically my least anxious time as I don't have much schoolwork. I have come to discover several unresolved issues I have not worked through on my own and do not know where to start in which the guidance from a professional may may prove to be helpful. Furthermore, I have issues with remembering to take my medication regularly. So they have not been as effective recently and I have started an effective system of using a pill organizer so I can track which days I forget or whether or not I took the medication that day. It is likely that after a few weeks, I may need to increase my dosage since I still have a significant amount of anxiety, but that decision would be discussed by a psychiatrist or a family doctor later. Overall, the most effective way I've dealt with my mental illnesses personally was doing research on my own in the regulation of the four mood chemicals through the use of an SRRI medication. I am currently making plans to switch to a counselor that does not work through the school so that I can keep a consistent counselor that I can always return to and is available at all times of the year. There was a time that I was too afraid to reach out for help, but ever since I started reaching out for support, I have never looked back and have become a stronger, better version of me, even though healing and growing sometimes is painful and difficult, and it doesn't always feel as if you are growing. So for today's episode, I actually have quite a bit in the reflection, so I'm going to try to go through it quickly, but that might be a little difficult considering how much is on this episode, and also I haven't reviewed this as much as I typically do, so it might be a little bit of a surprise for me as well as to what is on my reflection. So it might be a little messy, I apologize, but we'll try to get through this. Uh, The first thing I wanted to discuss with treatments is I just wanted to explain what some of the chemicals in the brain related to mental health is because all these treatments are used to mostly regulate or produce some of these chemicals. So the first one would be dopamine and it is the reward chemical. It controls your motivation, learning, and pleasure and it drives you to accomplish goals, desires, or in needs. When you are deficient in dopamine, how it can affect you is it can cause some procrastination, low self-esteem, lack of motivation, uh, low energy or or fatigue, uh, the inability to focus, uh, feelings of anxiousness or hopelessness and mood swings. A lot of times people with, say, depression do not feel welcomed in places or don't feel that reward chemical, so things don't really pay off. So if they do something that they should be proud of their body isn't producing these hormones or these chemicals that allow them to feel accomplished and so it can be very difficult for them to stay motivated when they don't have that reward um ways that you can increase your dopamine levels would be through meditation uh daily to-do list to keep you on track because even if you are low in dopamine having those small accomplishments will still produce it to maybe increase the levels establishing long-term and short-term goals, eating food rich in the L-tyrosine. I'm not exactly for sure what that is. Then exercising regularly 
or creating something such as music or writing or some art piece. So those are all ways that you can increase it without medication. And I think most of these when I'm going through the chemicals are ways you can increase it without medication. The next one is oxytocin, which we did discuss in one episode. It is, uh, it is the hormone that is responsible for trust and builds and sustains relationships. It is also known as the cuddle or the love hormone and plays a role in bonding with the, your peers and people around you. Not just a significant other, but also like family and friends, co-workers, anything along those lines if you have a connection with people around you. When you are deficient in oxytocin, uh, feeling lonely or stressed is common and becomes more frequent when you're lacking the hormone. Uh, You also lack motivation and have low energy and fatigue, much like dopamine. Uh, You can feel a disconnect in relationships and feelings of anxiousness and insomnia. Ways that you can increase oxytocin level doesn't have to necessarily be physical touch, but it can include physical touch, socializing with other people, uh, massages or acupuncture can increase oxytocin, Uh, listening to music, exercise, taking cold showers, which I find a little interesting, Uh, meditation, or playing with an animal, which being with an animal and being like uh, petting or cuddling with like a dog or a cat or anything like that is why emotional support animals have such a valuable impact on their owners is because of the production of oxytocin that can allow them to feel more connected with people around them. The next one is serotonin, and it is the mood stabilizer. It controls feelings of significance or importance among your peers, and uh, it's a calm form of accepting yourself with the people around you. But it also kind of stabilizes all the other hormones. So if you're lacking uh, serotonin, your mood can be kind of all over the place. In fact, one of the ways that deficiencies affect you is mood swings. It can also cause low self-esteem, becoming overly sensitive. Uh, It causes anxiety and panic attacks, feelings of hopelessness, social phobias. Um, It can cause obsession or compulsion and insomnia. Uh, Ways that you can increase serotonin levels would be through exercise, cold showers, sunlight, and massages. And when you start taking medication, most of them are serotonin regulators because it's trying to stabilize all the other hormones. The last one, the fourth chemical, is endorphins. So an endorphin is the painkiller. It releases brief euphoria to alleviate physical pain, and it is a response to pain and stress and can alleviate some anxiety and depression. When you're deficient in endorphins, anxiety and depression will set in and you'll start developing mood swings. Uh, Aches and pains throughout the body can be a symptom of anxiety and depression, and that is a result of a deficiency in endorphins. Uh, It can also cause insomnia and impulsive behavior. Um, Ways that you can increase endorphin levels is through laughter or in crying, For example, you could watch a comedy to, like, increase the laughter and, like, I guess that, those endorphin levels. Uh, Creating music or art, eating dark chocolate or spicy foods, uh, exercising and stretching, and massages and meditation can also increase endorphin levels. Uh, The next part I got, uh, it is the types of treatments. I got it from Psych Guides, and I can put that link onto the website once I have that up and running. This next part with the types of treatment, I am not 100% familiar on. I intended to look over it a little more before I recorded, but I'm kind of pressed for time. So it'll be a surprise for both of us. The first one is psychiatric hospitalization. And this is probably the most extreme form of treatment. But the psychiatric hospitalization is When a person is admitted to a private psychiatric hospital, a medical hospital with a psychiatric floor, or a state psychiatric hospital. Uh, Psychiatric, psych, wow, it'd be great if I could actually say that word. Psychiatric hospitalization treatments typically consist of stabilization, close monitoring, monitoring, medication, administrations of fluids and nutrition, and other necessary emergency care. 
People may be voluntarily or involuntarily hospitalized. A person may be involuntarily hospitalized when they either are gravely disabled or are endangered, a danger to themselves or others. Um, but a person, in order to be eligible to go to a psychiatric hospital, they have to have severe mental health symptoms, hallucinations or delusions, are suicidal or homicidal, have not slept or eaten in days, or lost the ability to care for themselves due to mental health symptoms. Psychiatric hospitalization, I think it has really bad stigmas to end up at a psychiatric hospital, but that isn't necessarily the case. Not eating or sleeping in days when uh, your depression gets so bad that you could become suicidal, actually more common than I think people realize. I don't think that we should have like all these stigmas. Like there's always that gossip that if someone goes to a mental hospital, people always have like all these rumors that go around of what happened. And I think that's a stigma that kind of needs to be resolved because the it's just people receiving the health that, well, the care that they need for their mental health, just as they would for physical health. The next one is inpatient or residential mental health treatment. Uh, they say... Inpatient treatment, also referred to as residential mental health treatment, takes place in a residential facility on a 24-7 basis. This level of care is best suited for those who need constant medical supervision, as well as those with relatively severe long-term symptoms who have not shown significant progress after outpatient mental health intervention. So the mental illness treatment for an inpatient facility typically consists of the following types of treatment. Uh, individual psychotherapy or counseling, group therapy, medication, medical supervision, uh, recreational therapies, and com- complementary therapies, such as yoga or meditation. Uh, some treatment centers also offer luxury or executive options in addition to the types of treatment listed above. And those treatments could include private rooms, gourmet, gourmet right, meals massage and spa treatments, fitness centers, swimming pools, and other luxury and executive amenities such as computers, internet access, and workplaces. When I think of the inpatient mental health treatment, I'm kind of thinking, I don't know if any of you guys have watched uh, Working Moms, but Frankie gets postpartum depression and she kind of becomes a danger to herself and others and she wants to seek help. And so they have this recreational center that she would go to to help her and get back on track. And once she was able to like pull herself together long enough and like make progress, she was allowed to go back into the real world. These facilities are more to like boost the socialization and create a more positive atmosphere outside of the world that they know outside these centers. Um, Outpatient mental health treatment is, um, it does not require participants to live at a treatment center. Uh, Instead, the participants would visit treatment centers or a therapist's office on certain days of the week. Outpatient mental health treatment is best suited for those with mild to moderate symptoms, a solid support system, and the ability to focus outside of the treatment environment. Uh, Many types of the mental health treatment options are offered on outpatient basis. These include individual therapy, group therapy, family therapy, support groups, intensive outpatient care, uh, partial hospitalization, psychiatric medication, and outpatient medical management. I'm, unless I'm wrong, because I feel like it's listed somewhere else in here, but this would be kind of like counseling. This is the most common form of treatments, entirely voluntary as far as I'm concerned. Uh, One additional type of treatment would be dual diagnosis treatment which I don't think I've heard of before. Uh, Dual diagnosis treatments, they say, offers comprehensive mental health services to those struggling with both mental health conditions and an addiction or substance use disorder. Uh, Dual diagnosis treatment addresses and treats both conditions simultaneously. Both disorders need to be simultaneously treated to maximize the chances of full recovery. For example, if an addicted person has co-occurring anxiety disorder, they may relapse to self-medicate the unmanaged anxiety. 
Treating the underlying mental health conditions and traumas that contribute to the addiction can help prevent relapse and maintain sobriety in the long term. So I, as far as I'm concerned, a lot of these people that do the dual diagnosis treatment might have gotten into an addiction because of their own self-medicating or treating themselves with like alcohol or other drugs to make them their anxiety or depression go away and it wasn't effective and took a toll in the end so the next one is psychotherapy uh they say that psychotherapy is talk therapy uh has effectively treated a wide range of mental health conditions and is offered in both inpatient and outpatient settings during talk therapy a person or a group discuss discusses their issues with a therapist who can help them process their feelings and learn new coping mechanisms. They list here that there are many different types of psychotherapy available, such as individual therapy, uh, where an individual talks one-on-one with the therapist and they address unresolved feelings of uh, trauma and mental health problems using a variety of different strategies and approaches. Uh, The next one would be group therapy. Group therapy is typically led by a therapist and consists of of various numbers of participants. Uh, It's usually focused on specific topics. Uh, For example, a therapist may lead a group session on anger management, postpartum depression, or suicide. Uh, Family therapy is often recommended for children. Like I know that was mentioned when I was researching some of the childhood anxiety and depression. Family therapy is a form of psychotherapy where the family members meet with a therapist to resolve issues. Family therapy is often conducted by a licensed marriage or family therapist who specializes in family therapy. So family therapy, I assume, also includes marriage counseling. Cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, is the most common psychotherapeutic approach. It can be used on individuals, group, or family level. Therapists will help clients address unhealthy thoughts and behaviors by replacing them with realistic self-talk and constructive behaviors. Uh, this is what the counseling at Ball State was attempting to do. I know with like the last therapist that I got, I mean, I did have a few not great therapists that were more so like telling me what to think rather than helping me replace the thoughts myself and work on that positive self-talk. Uh, Dialectual behavioral therapy is most commonly used to treat individuals suffering from borderline personality disorder. It has been effectively treated, has effectively treated other disorders. Uh, DBT emphasizes accepting and invalidating unhealthy thoughts, emotioning, (laughs) emphasizes on accepting and validating unhealthy thoughts, emotions, and behaviors and learning to find the balance between acceptance and change. All right. <laughs> I just had two more forms of psychotherapy to get through. Uh, interpersonal therapy is the therapy that helps people address problems in a relationship and teaches new interpersonal and communicational skills to improve the quality of relationships. This form of therapy can be used in couple counseling and those with depression who have difficult relating to others well the next one they have listed from the site guides that's what it was so the next one would be medication which i'll go a little more into depth about in a little bit using other sources other than the site guide Uh, medication can be used to treat symptoms of mental illness medications often use a combination of psychotherapy and offered in both inpatient and outpatient mental health settings Um, The medications can include antidepressants, can also be prescribed for anxiety or insomnia. Common types of antidepressants include serotonin reuptake inhibitors, well, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are SSRI drugs, which I kind of briefly mentioned earlier, and selective non-repinephrine uptake inhibitors, SNRIs. Uh, I've heard of the first one, not so much the second one. Antidepressants work by balancing the chemicals in your brain called a neurotransmitter that affect your mood and emotions. It can improve mood, sleep patterns, appetite, and concentration. And it usually takes three or four weeks for people to notice a difference or change in mood. 
Um, for me, that wasn't necessarily the case. I had to, like, something weird. Like, when I was taking my medications, I was... If I switched to a new med, I was always super loopy and I could not focus whatsoever for at least the first three or four days. And then it kind of dialed itself down after that. But generally, it's three to four weeks. And I did mention that to my counselor and they made it sound like what I was going through is normal for some people. So if that happens to you, I mean, mention it to your doctor or your psychiatrist just to be safe but you shouldn't be too concerned if it goes very quickly or you have a different reaction to it. Um, it is not uncommon for people to change their medication if the first ones doesn't work. And the first medication usually only works for 60% of people. The side effects can include headaches, agitation, nausea and vomiting, sleeplessness, drowsiness, reduced sex drive, dry mouth, and weight gain. Uh, many of these symptoms only last a few days or weeks and then it gets better. So just keep track of any of the side effects that you have when you're taking these medications and monitor whether they improve because they should go away after your body adapts to having the medication. Um, I know some of the other ones, is kind of your bowel movements will get a little funky when you first start taking them for some people. But uh your doctor or your psychiatrist will go over all the possible side effects before you start taking them. So you'll have a little more of a heads up about that because it also kind of depends on what medication you're taking that which symptoms become more, I don't know, common. Um, I had it where I was getting fatigue and sleeplessness, but then I couldn't sleep at night with that one medication and it never improved, which is why I eventually switched the medication. Um, medications do not have to be a lifelong endeavor and are recommended to take medication for at least six to nine months. But it is also like a very common stigma that if you take medication, you're going to be on anxiety or depression medication for the rest of your life. But you can manage the symptoms and eventually work your way off the medication. You should not go off the medication without consulting your doctor first. And I highly recommend that if you're taking medication that you see some sort of psychotherapy to help you replace some of your thought processes with more healthy alternatives so that you can eventually get yourself off that medication and deal with it and without the extra aid. Um, Anti-anxiety medications can help people who suffer from generalized anxiety, social anxiety, or panic attacks. Benzodiazepines are most commonly prescribed on short-acting anti-anxiety medications. However, these drugs are only meant to be used in the short-term and long-term use can lead to dependence or addiction. For this reason, uh, there are other non-habit-forming anti-anxiety medications that can be prescribed in place of that big word I could not pronounce earlier. Um, a lot of people who have anxiety also have depression and usually they only give you anti-depression medication or like antidepressants because it, if you stabilize the serotonin, you'll most likely be able to stabilize some of that anxiety that you're experiencing. Uh, mood stabilizers are the next type of drug. They are commonly prescribed for people with bipolar disorder and other related mood disorders to stabilize the mood and prevent significant mood swings. Manic episodes or depression. And then antipsychotics are prescribed to treat schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders and may be prescribed to individuals with bipolar disorders that are exhibiting psych psychotic symptoms often during a manic episode. All right, we are only like two thirds of the way through. The next one is a 12-step program and support groups, which I think are commonly used for people with alcohol abuse, drug abuse, uh, or addictions to gambling, shopping, or video gaming. They can also be implemented with people with anxiety and depression and eating disorders. Uh, the 12-step program is an approach to build on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Participants often work with a sponsor to complete 12 steps and the sponsor is available to help the person with any issues that they may be struggling with during recovery, during recovery, including cravings. Many of these programs have a spiritual component, but they do not require participants to be religious. Participants 
choose a higher power that they can use to help guide them through recovery process. This higher power can be whatever the participant wants. God, music, or nature would be an example. Well, although support groups and 12-step programs are free and beneficial, they do not provide medical supervision and offer or offer professional therapy. Some other complementary or alternative uh, treatments that Psych Guide list is yoga, uh, meditation, nutritional diets, exercise, and they have listed equine therapy, which uh, uses horses to ease symptoms of many health conditions such as autism, anxiety, and ADHD. And then going back on some of the other things that I was talking about, I'm going to go back to some of the things on counseling since I do know a little bit more about that. The benefits of counseling can be improved communication and interpersonal skills with the people around you. Uh, for example, they might help you think through how you're going to resolve a conflict with other people. If you have counseling groups with another person present, you can work it out with the counselor or you can work it out individually so that when you go back to your regular life outside of the counseling, you can deal with those issues and like learn how to communicate with people better. Um, it can lead to greater self-acceptance and self-esteem. Uh, the ability to change self-defeating behaviors and habits can create a better expression and management of emotions, including anger. Uh, relief from depression, anxiety, and other mental health conditions. It can increase confidence and decision-making skills. Um, it, it leads to the ability to manage stress effectively, uh, improve problem-solving and conflict resolution abilities, which is kind of mentioned earlier, greater sense of self and purpose, and recognition of distorted thinking. So it helps you think through, like, recognize some of your mind traps that you are getting into, such as, like, black and white thinking or jumping to conclusions and help you, like, work through how to properly think through a situation without distorting it. I got that list of benefits from counseling from Co-University, uh, like C-O-E. Uh, I think they further listed some of the misconceptions about counseling, and I believe I got this from the same site. One misconception is if I need help, there is something wrong with me and I must be broken or abnormal. However, just like any physical illness, mental illness, and addiction are medical problems. You wouldn't say that someone who has cancer or the flu is broken. So needing help and going to counseling does not mean you're broken or there's something wrong with you. Another misconception would be no one understands my problem. I don't deserve help. You'll be surprised on how many people actually understand your issues considering that one in four Americans, uh, at least American adults, will experience mental illness at some point in their lifetime. It may not be chronic for all, all of those people, but at some point they will likely hit an issue. So people may be able to relate and listen and help you more than you realize. And of course, you always deserve to have help and feel healthy and whole. Another one is they'll put you on pills that will put you in a fog and you'll never be able to stop taking them. Um, that's a misconception because, I mean, if you're on the wrong medication, it can make you like drowsy or in a fog, but you can change your medications or some of those symptoms would subside and you should be able to get off those medications if you start making improvements in other areas of like your, uh, the ways you think and how you take care of yourself. So you should be the one in control the whole time. Another misconception, which I think is one that I kind of fell into for the longest time, was if I just try harder, I won't need treatment. Uh, mental health and substance abuse treatment is for people who have an illness that deserve treatment, just as much as any other illness. It can't be cured by just trying harder or ignoring the problem or just working on it by yourself. And for some people that may work, but that's not the case with every single person. Sometimes it is necessary to be on medication or to go to therapy. Another misconception is that people will think less of me if you seek help. 56% of the co-students surveyed for that website had sought out counseling at some point in the past. So that's almost 50% of the students. So I don't think anyone would think less of you when it's such a common thing. And a lot of people stay quiet about whether they go to treatment or counseling 
And so you'll be surprised how supportive other people are just because it is more common than you realize. Therapy is more than just talking. They'll help you think through, like, recognize some of your negative thought patterns and mind traps and help replace them with a healthier way of thinking and kind of help you. It teaches you skills on how to work with that in your life outside of the counseling. And your friends are not necessarily registered professionals. And if they don't understand exactly what you're going through, they might not be as much help as you have hoped. And they can be a great outlet to talk to. But I know when I talk to like my friends, after talking about it, I don't always feel better because I didn't get that process to replay some of those thinking. So they can be extremely helpful, but not as helpful as therapy could be. Um, another misconception is that it's unaffordable. There's actually uh, certain treatments like online or through your colleges and schools that will offer free treatment and counseling. Uh, one thing that I will like to go over is what to look for in a counselor. I had issues with the counselors not understanding my religion and making assumptions and kind of telling me that my religion was harmful for me or implying certain things that were not helpful. So therefore, it is possible to get a counselor that is not a good fit for you. And it, there is nothing wrong with requesting a new counselor with the same ethnicity, race, gender, or religion as you. It is important for your mental health so that you can feel more understood and related to. And if you think it would help to have a counselor of those specific categories, it is perfectly okay for you to request that. It doesn't mean you're closed-minded or picky. It's just you're trying to find someone that can relate to you a little more and understand what you're going through, where some counselors without that same experiences might not understand it as much. Furthermore, a counselor should not attempt to fix you or tell you what to do. They will not judge or pressure or shame you. And if they do, you should seek another counselor or request a new one. Counselors are supposed to help you discover the solutions you need and guide you, guide you, guide you towards reaching your goals, teaching you new skills that can apply to your everyday life. One last thing I guess I'll go over before I wrap this all up. As I said, this was going to be a very long reflection today. Uh, the last thing I want to do, I got from the Real Depression Project. It is an Instagram account. And the, this is just a list of 15 mental health benefits of having a pet or an emotional support animal. So playing with animals can elevate your serotonin and oxytocin levels. It can help you feel safer and reduce your anxiety and depression. Their playful energy and exuberance are infectious and can kind of help you feel that same energy by being around them. Uh, they can provide companionship or company for when you're feeling down. Uh, they add a purpose and, and fulfillment to one's life. So taking care of someone, like taking care of a pet can make you feel more, I don't know, you have like that purpose and you feel like you matter to some, like you're, you have this added importance to the life of this pet. And they also provide ways to meet new people and socialize. For example, if you go to a dog park or really any park, you can socialize with other people and it can get you out of the house and into the outdoor settings that can greatly improve your mental health. Um, they also provide sensory relief. So being able to pet an animal can release some of that oxytocin and stress relief as well. Uh, the quality time you spend with them provides some separation from life stressors such as work commitments. While I was at school, Milo would always come up to me while I was working on things, and it would kind of remind me to take a break since I had so many issues with that first semester when I didn't have Milo around that I would just work through meals, and I would not even get up to, like, take a shower, to eat. But when my dog's constantly coming up with me with a toy or wants attention, it kind of pulls me away from that work for a little bit. It kind of helps me relieve some of that stress a little bit. Um, they can also add structure and routine to your life, which can help you stay more organized and on top of your task and can prevent procrastination. Uh, they provide unconditional love and they can make one feel less alone in the darker moments. 
Uh, they can maintain a social connection when you're too burned out to meet others. Uh, so if you're not able to socialize or meet new people like they did at the park, even when you're just at home, you still have that social connection, even though it is not with another human being. Uh, they can also soften you and allow you to let your guard down, which can also further help you socialize and make connections with other people. Uh, if you get registered for an emotional support animal, you do need a note from a doctor. This note cannot come from a therapist or a psychiatrist. I don't know exactly what that reason is. It has to come from a family doctor. When you get them registered, they can live in your house with you without having to sign like a contract with the, the landlords or you, they can stay in your dorms. And they can also fly on planes with you. But I believe you have to get something specified that they're allowed on the planes. Your landlord cannot charge pet fees. I think they can do damage fees, but they cannot tack on an extra, extra like monthly fee or a pet security deposit because it is an emotional support animal and it is a medical treatment and not just a companion animal or a pet necessarily. I would go more in and just talk about my dog there for a while, but this reflection has been long enough and you've sat through quite a bit already. So I think I'm going to cut it off here. Just a reminder, our season finale is this upcoming week. Well, not upcoming week, this upcoming episode. And after the release of the season finale, I do not plan on doing a second season. However, I eventually may work on some updates on how I'm doing and things that I have learned. But it might take a little while to get that all up and running. For those updates, please follow our Instagram account, moralistory.podcast on Instagram. And our website should be linked in there. And if you have any listener stories, I was probably going to create them. Um, create a... Uh, section in that website to post those and if you have those listener stories feel free to email them to me anytime uh our email is moral of the story podcast 2021 at gmail.com and lastly uh today's quote i pulled another poem and the reason why i chose this poem is because i think when we think about counseling a lot of times we don't want to get help or we think that we're doing so much worse than everyone else and you just want to feel as if you belong and you don't want to admit that you have any issues. So this poem's kind of talking about like everyone has their own issues and you shouldn't be comparing yourself to other people because you don't really know their story either and you should really be just focusing on yourself instead. And I don't know who wrote this poem. It just says like E-H at the bottom. So I wish I could give them some credit. But the poem is... What if the grass is greener on the other side because it's always raining there? Where the ones who never fail to give hardly have enough to spare. Where the people with the broadest smiles have pillows filled with tears and the bravest ones you've ever known are crippled by their fears. It's filled with lonely people, but they're never seen alone. Where those who lack real shelter make you feel the most at home. Maybe their grass looks greener because they've painted on the hue. Just remember from the other side, your grass looks greener too. And that's the moral of the story. Thank you for listening and I hope you tune in for the season finale. Thank you.